You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, August 16th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. There was a, a teacher, a fourth grade teacher, and she gave her class an assignment for history. They were all supposed to draw a famous scene or a famous event from history. And so they went to work, and and one boy in the class drew George Washington crossing the Delaware River in the American Revolution. And the teacher loved it, nodded with approval. And she went to another desk, and there was another boy, and he drew a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. delivering his famous I Have a Dream speech. And she, she loved it, nodded with approval again. One young girl in the class was drawing a picture of Katherine Johnson solving Difficult equations at NASA to help John Glenn and the astronauts orbit the Earth safely. And the teacher loved that as well and nodded with approval. And she came to one other young lady in the class, and the young lady drew a picture of Jonah being swallowed by a fish. And the teacher looked down and, and said, well, that's, that's a very nice drawing, but you know, we're supposed to draw something that really happened, something from real history. And the little girl said, well, this is real history. We we read it in the Bible, and what God tells us there is true. I believe it's true. This is my picture. And the the teacher, (laughs) kind of in a condescending way again, said, well, well, that's very nice. I'm sure you believe that, but I'm going to have to insist that you draw something from real history, something that really happened. And the little girl dug in her heels. She said, well, I believe that this is true. In fact, when I go to heaven one day, I will ask Jonah himself, and I'm sure he'll confirm that it is true. And the teacher, I think, flustered at this point, and maybe just being uh, sarcastic, said, well, what are you going to do if Jonah's in hell, huh? And the little girl looked at her and said, well, then I guess you'll have to ask him. (laughs) Now... I'm told it's National Tell-A-Joke Day or something, so I guess, I guess I've done my part. I'm glad you could enjoy that. It is funny, and, and we should laugh, but I, I, hope, I hope you'll also agree with me that the issue of hell itself is no laughing matter at all. And the parable that we're looking at this morning that Gideon just read for us so well is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It sets before us the most sobering reality any soul could ever consider. As Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then after that to face judgment. This parable is also a vivid illustration of a proverb, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13, which says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. My question for us this morning is why? Why did this rich man end up in hell? The text says Hades, we can can say hell without doing any disservice or damage to the text. Why did he end up in hell suffering under the torment of God's wrath? I'm going to suggest today there are two reasons cited in our text. The first of those reasons 
will be found in the descriptions of the rich man and Lazarus as we compare the two in verses 19 through 21. And the second reason will be found in the dialogue between the rich man and Abraham as we look through verses 24 to 31. So let's do that, and before we do, let's pray one more time. Father, we're asking for your help here. I ask that you would please guide us as we take a closer look at this parable. May the warnings that you have placed here out of love for us and out of a concern for our eternal souls spur us on to repentance and to an unshakable confidence in your word. Help us to see all people as you see them so that we would seek to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and and also learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. And finally, Lord, I ask that you would protect everyone listening today, whether they're here in person or, or listening over the computer. Protect them from either a false sense of guilt or, on the other hand, a false sense of security. Instead, Lord, may your Holy Spirit bring conviction of sin wherever that is needed and also the assurance of our freedom from condemnation wherever that is needed. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, we should say up front, right up front, that the rich man does not end up in hell simply because he is very wealthy. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's, let's look at verse 22. Who is the first man that Lazarus meets in paradise when he dies and goes to the good place? Who's the first person Lazarus meets? That's right. Abraham. And what does the Scripture say about Abraham? Genesis 13, verse 2. It says, Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and gold. Does everybody see that? Abraham was very rich, much richer than most other people, and yet Abraham is in glory. Nobody goes to hell, or nobody is considered evil in God's eyes simply because they are very wealthy. Do you all see that? So if it's not the rich man's wealth that was the problem, what was his problem? Well, let's start to get our answer. We'll start looking at the top there in verse 19 as we get to know the rich man and this man, Lazarus. So let's read there in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, there are rich people and then there's Bill Gates, right? There are rich people and then there's Jeff Bezos. You get the idea. This guy in our story was not simply rich. He was filthy rich. That is what Jesus is trying to drive home in verse 19. I like to say he was purple rich. And I won't sing like a purple rain. That's in my my head, but I won't do that to you. But that's how rich this guy was. When Jesus says he was clothed in purple, 
He, he means what would immediately have been known to the people of that day. Purple clothing in that time was reserved primarily for royalty. Only the wealthiest of the wealthy would dress in purple clothing. And, and one of the reasons for that is because there were no synthetic dyes back in that time. All right, that didn't happen until the 19th century. So you had to come up with natural purple dye, and the process for doing that was so difficult, so time-consuming. Uh, purple dye was so rare in its natural form that it made purple dye very expensive. In, in fact, it came from a mollusk, some type of predatory sea snail. Is that not the most frightening thing you've ever heard? A predatory sea snail called the murex. There was some sort of awful sea snail that, that could apparently be found in sufficient quantities in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Tyre. So if you read about the biblical city of Tyre and Sidon, that's where you would find these creatures. And so the purple dye trade was centered there in Tyre in modern-day Lebanon. The way you would get this dye so that it was usable is those making the dye would have to actually crack the shell of this sea snail, isolate the purple-producing substance, expose it to sunlight for a precise amount of time. It had to be long enough for the sun to activate it to produce the purple dye, but not so long that it would dry it out. Painstaking process. And then after all that, would you believe it or not, it took as many as 250,000. 250,000 of these little sea creatures to produce one ounce of usable purple dye. This is why purple dye was literally worth its weight in gold at this time. One pound of purple wool costs more than most people made in an entire year. This guy was purple rich. He was so filthy rich, and he wasn't just rich, he wanted everybody to know that he was richer than they are. That's the kind of guy we're meeting, and that's what Jesus is trying to drive home. He continues in verse 19, not only was this guy clothed in purple, but he was dressed in fine linen. And without going into too much about what that is, I'll just say that it was sea silk from Egypt and it was every bit as costly as his purple clothing. And lastly, in verse 19, we're also told that he feasted sumptuously every day. In other words, this guy had all the finest food and he had more of it than either he or his well-fed guests could ever consume themselves. It would not have been a stretch, probably would not be a stretch to say that this man could have fed Lazarus for a week on what he threw out every night. Now, before we get to a description of Lazarus, you might be thinking at this point, well, this might not be a bad thing. This means I have nothing to worry about as I read this parable. I'm clearly not purple rich. Maybe God doesn't consider me to be among the rich of the world at all, and this would not apply to me, but, but not so fast. Randy Alcorn has been very helpful to me here in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He says there, if you have sufficient food, 
And I, I, would, I would use that, I, I would say if you, if you never really miss a meal unless you want to, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or an apartment, have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, if all of that is true of you, then you are among the top 15% already of the world's wealthy. If you have any money saved, so we're not even talking about you've taken Financial Peace University and you're up to those levels. If you have any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition, and live in your own home, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. And we could go on. If MSN money is a trustworthy source, they tell us that if you make more than $50,000 a year, or at least that amount, you're actually in the top 1% of the world's income earners. Many of us, probably most of us, are rich by global standards. And so we'll do well to keep that in mind as we continue to go through this parable together. Jesus is not to be tuned out simply because we are not purple rich. Okay, so let's meet Lazarus now in verse 20. With Lazarus, it was the exact opposite as we find with this rich man. It says here in verse 20 that at his gate, that is the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired, in verse 21, to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, if Mr. Purple had an exact opposite on the poverty side, it would be Lazarus. He was that poor. In fact, if you look at how the Bible compares these two, you'll see a number of interesting things. The rich man, in verse 19, was covered in purple. Lazarus, in verse 20, was covered in sores. Occasionally, in verse 21, he was covered in the saliva of dogs. The rich man, in verse 19, feasted sumptuously every day. Lazarus, on the other hand, in verse 20, desired, or in verse 21, desired to be fed with even the little crumbs that would have fallen from the rich man's table. And now you, you want to notice something very important here. This, this probably hit me harder than anything else as I read and studied this passage. The Bible doesn't give us any indication here that this rich man ever actively oppressed or ever actively exploited Lazarus. Do you see that? We're, we're, not, we're not given the indication that he went out of his way ever to actively exploit or oppress Lazarus. I think the most sobering thing about this parable is, is the fact, or may be the fact, that this man ended up in hell even without doing any of that. For all we know, his only sin with regard to Lazarus was that of neglecting him. Are, are you with me? Do you, do you see this? Not actively oppressing, not actively exploiting, perhaps only neglecting in the manner described here. But here's why, here's why nothing else would have been needed in order for God to look at that and to condemn this rich man. His neglect of Lazarus reveals something about his heart. 
It, it, isn't, it isn't so much just that he neglected the poor or that he neglected Lazarus. It's what it revealed about his heart. And if you've been reading in our community Bible reading in CBR with us, this past week on Friday, just a couple of days ago, you would have come across 1 John chapter 3. And you would have read that with us. And you would have come across verse 17. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This, friends, this is the first reason that the rich man ended up in hell. And this is ultimately true for all people who end up in hell, regardless of their station in life. The love of God did not abide in the rich man's heart. That is the first reason he ends up in hell. The love of God did not abide in his heart. It was not in his heart. And the evidence for this, the first piece of evidence for this, was the way that he closed his heart to the cries and the needs of Lazarus, despite being more than able to provide him with a measure of relief when he came across him. God looked at that and translates that God translates that into what it means about our hearts. And this is the first reason that the rich man ends up in hell. And the fact that we're talking about Lazarus and not just a generic poor person is also important. Let me, let, let me take us back to verse 20 again. I want, to, I want to show you something. There's a particular phrase here that really stands out. To the rich man in our story, Lazarus was not just any poor person. He was, as it says at the beginning of verse 20, he was the poor man at his gate. Do you all see that? It is not merely the poor in general with whom God is concerned when he evaluates our lives at this point. It is the poor whom he has laid at our gate. This has been ripping my heart apart for a long time now, and, and I think even more this past week as I prepared for this message. Whose needs has God laid in front of your gate? You say, I don't have a gate. Well, you, you understand. The gate here doesn't have to be a literal gate, but, but whose dire needs, real legitimate basic needs, has God by His providence brought into proximity to you? Whose needs has He brought onto the radar of your attention and your concerns? And how have you responded? How have I responded to God's providential joining of their needs with our potential help. How do you even determine whose needs begin to create a moral obligation for you? 
And this is what I've been trying to think and pray through. And for me, I can tell you, and you, you'll have to sit with the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and some things will probably be, be, be the same for us. Some will maybe be different for you. The Lord's Spirit will guide you in that. For me, I can tell you that this certainly includes um, everyone in my immediate and extended family. I, I would say that would be the same for all of us as believers. First Timothy takes care of that for us. If any man does not care for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith. Um, this would include your fellow church members. Certainly all those within a community group, if you're in a group like that within a church. Fellow believers, even beyond our church bounds to a, to a certain degree, as we have occasion and opportunity. This, for me, would include those who live on my street. You know, we have a very interesting street where we live here in this city. I won't, I won't say exactly where it is, uh, just because things are, are a little crazy today. But people can probably find me anyway, but I'm not going to help them, you understand. <laughs> but on our street, it, it really is a sort of mixed income situation. I mean, we've, we've got on the north side of our street a, uh, a group of people who would fall into the biblical category here of the rich of the world. And then on the south portion of our street, less than a block away even, we have people that might even be at the poverty line, if not below it, here in the city of Richmond. And so as I read this, I have to imagine that as far as God is concerned, many of my neighbors on my street would be considered those laid at my gate. I don't know all of their names. I drive by not too far away from my house and I see people standing on the street corner with signs and, and whatever else you think about this, I'm just telling you what happens in my heart. I look at them and they are Lazarus to me. I see them all the time. We're not in the same position. We're not in the same situation. I have more than I need. They need more than they have. And it tugs on my heart. And I, and I truly believe it's the Holy Spirit. And yes, I could rationalize everything and say, well, well, wisdom would dictate I not give them this at this moment. And that might be true. I'm not saying no to that. The problem that I have and that, that I believe I would have with God is the fact that I... I want the light to stay green so that I don't have to stop and look him in the eye. That's my problem. It's not about whether or not I give him a certain amount of money. or That's not my problem. My problem is my heart. Why do I want the light to stay green? Why do I want to maintain a safe distance between me and this person? It has nothing to do with COVID. It was like that before this pandemic. This is where I need help. And maybe some of you are in the same place. So Lord, help us. Guide us through this. I don't know what you're putting on the hearts of everyone sitting here or everyone listening over the computer, but I know what you're putting on my heart. And I know I have need of repentance in these areas, and uh, I know I'm not alone. So I pray that you would help us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm not finished. I know something. I'm not finished. That's the first reason the rich man ended up in hell. His unbelieving heart that did not have the love of God. And the fact that it indicated what was going on in his heart. Now the other reason. What's the other reason the rich man ends up in hell? 
All right, let's go and let's look. Let's look at the conversations between Abraham and this formerly rich man as he is in torment in hell. He had died in verse 22, as did Lazarus. Lazarus went to be with Abraham in the bosom of Abraham or the side of Abraham, which, which literally means, if you, if you know what's going on here, he's at the great mega banquet that Pastor Robert spoke about two weeks ago when we looked at Luke 14. It's, it's called Abraham's bosom because he's actually now in the place of honor at the right hand of Abraham. So that if he leaned a little bit to his left, he would be in the bosom of Abraham, reclining at table with him. That is the picture we're being given here. He is now the one feasting sumptuously. And as for the formerly rich man, it is now his turn to be the beggar. Let's look at verse 24. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But remember, remember what it says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Not be answered in the sense of receiving what he needs at that moment. But in this case, the man is answered in one sense by Abraham in verse 25. And Abraham says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And not only would he find no relief in this moment, but, but Abraham is very clear in verse 26 that it's going to be like this for the rest of eternity. There is no relief coming. See, see let, me, let me say this here. There is no, in the scriptures, there is no concept like purgatory. All right, that purgatory, I was surprised to learn this as I, I grew up Catholic, and, and when I started reading the Bible for myself after you know, I turned 20 years old, I was surprised to find this passage. There is no purgatory. You, you cannot pay a sum. No one can pay a sum for you that will get you out. You cannot seek relief or repentance there and then have another chance and, and, and have another go at it. No. The opportunity for repentance and the forgiveness that comes through it is in this life. Death cements, as C.S. Lewis said, death has a way of cementing the soul. And what we were in process here is cemented by passing through death. And we will be that for eternity. Abraham says here in verse 26, besides all this between us and you, there's a great chasm. Nobody who would want to go from here to there can go, and, and you can't come from where you are to us. And then he continues the conversation. This rich man, formerly rich man, he says, well, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Send Lazarus so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, no, that, that's... That's not how this works. That is not how this works. In fact, we don't need to send Lazarus. No point to that. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
You know what he means there? Moses and the prophets, that's, that's the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, the law, the writings, the prophets, Moses and the prophets, that's the way they talk about the Bible at that stage of history. They have the Bible. Let them listen to the Bible. This man corrects Abraham. Can you believe this? Even from hell, he is, he is correcting Abraham. No, 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 Abraham, you don't get it. You don't get it. What is the Bible going to do? No, no, no. Verse 30. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I, I need them to repent so that they don't come to this place. And therein he reveals the second reason why the rich man ended up in hell. He had a heart that did not have the love of God in it. And now it is clear that he never came to repentance upon hearing the word of God. And once again, friends, anyone who ends up in hell will have these two things in common. The love of God is not in the heart and that soul never found repentance upon hearing the word of God. Abraham, you don't get it, this man says. What is the Bible going to do? What is the word of God going to do? I went to synagogue. I went to church. I went to youth group. We read the Bible. It didn't do anything. He needs something with more power. No, 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 no. Abraham responds again in verse 31. No, no, Mr. Purple, you don't get it. You don't get it. If they will not listen to the Bible, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. This is the point where I realize I threw out the wrong set of notes. <laughs> but it's all right. That's right. Here's what's important here. If they will not listen to the Bible, nothing else can help them. That's what Abraham is saying. That's what heaven is saying. That's what Jesus, who is telling this story, is saying. What a mistake we make when we believe that people will be helped if we turn away from the Bible and give them something else. If, if people will not repent upon hearing the word of God, it is because their hearts are spiritually dead. Dead. And that dead, unresponsive heart will be just as unresponsive to the greatest miracle. It is a replacement heart, a new heart that is needed. Not a better technique. Not a better strategy. So often I watch us as Christians floundering through this futile exercise of believing that if we will simply rebrand ourselves as something that the rest of the world will approve of, a world that is constantly and still in rebellion against our God, if we can just remodel and rebrand ourselves as something they will approve of, then we might be able to win them over. I'm telling you it won't work. 
Jesus said, if they hated you or hated me, they will hate you too. Do, do you think that you will escape that? That promise from Christ, do you think that if you are faithful to Him, you will escape that simply because you rebrand yourself? Your latest post or TikTok or whatever it else, else it is people do nowadays, I can't even keep up with it. You, you think that, that, that somehow that is going to help people now? All of a sudden say, oh, you know, you know you're, you're such a nice person. I, 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 I. All of a sudden, what the Word of God could not accomplish is now happening. No, Ab- Abraham, Jesus, through the character of Abraham in this story, is trying to impress something upon us. There is nothing more powerful than God's Word if repentance is what we are trying to achieve or seek. And in fact, the Apostle Paul would drive this home. We are not going to ultimately be useful to anyone who is still separated from God if all we do is concern ourselves with giving in to their demands. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the Apostle Paul hits on this. Look at what he says there. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through its wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, like this rich man, Jews demand signs. You see that? Jews demand signs. Show me something. Give me a display of power. Show me a miracle. If somebody will come back from the dead, I'll believe you. Show me that. Jews demand signs. And others, Greeks, seek wisdom. Give me an airtight rational argument, explain it all to me, everything I can't understand, set it here before me, connect the dots. If you can do that, I'll finally believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks, others demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And the power of God, or the weakness rather of God, is stronger than the strength of man. What is Paul saying here? The Word of God in particular about Christ crucified and raised from the dead as the only way for repentance and forgiveness of of sins, Christ crucified is more power than that sign you're demanding. In that simple gospel message is more power to bring about repentance for those lost and separated from God than any other miracle you could think would do the job. Christ crucified, the simple gospel message, contains more power than everything I could tell you with three advanced degrees. 
Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God. If we are serious about helping people come to the knowledge, the saving knowledge and faith in Christ that Pastor Jake was praying about a moment ago, if we're serious about that, we will not be of any assistance to this world, lost and dying in sin, if we move away from biblical truth, biblical convictions, and confidence in God's word to do the job. It is absolutely imperative that the church be freed from the shackles of needing to be likable. It is absolutely imperative that we not put our own desire to be liked by people ahead of their need to be saved from their sins and the wrath of God. It is imperative. There is no time to concern ourselves with popularity. Souls are at stake. And I tell people, I, you know, I see Brandon and Lindsay, we, doing campus ministry for years, I would see people and I could tell in a conversation, here's a young lady or here's a young man, and you, you see them starting to be convinced by the message, and then the emotional and relational hurdle to them coming to Christ begins to surface, and they start to tell you about the fact that, listen, if this is true, that means my mother is in hell. I can't accept this. And, and I, would, I would look at them and I'd say, listen, I, I, I never knew your mother. I can't say anything to you about your mother. I don't know her. I don't know what transpired between her and God in her final moments. I know her judge, and I know that he'll never get anything right, or never rather get anything wrong. He got her case right. But it sounds like your mother really loved you, and you really love your mother. The only thing I know from this passage in the Bible about the rich man and Lazarus is if you're correct about your mother's destiny, she does not want you to follow her. Don't go there for her sake. She doesn't want to see you there. Never had anybody in that moment uh, give me any indication that that was effective. But I hope and pray that God is not finish with that little seed that was sown. Friends, I'll leave you with this. Here's the good news. The good news today is that rich or poor, none of us, none of us would ever need ever again to suffer the wrath of God. See, we are no longer in a position where we have to choose between heeding the word of God or having one return from the dead to warn us about the future. <laughs> you know, we have one much greater than Lazarus today who has returned from the dead to tell us that now is the opportunity to get this right. Jesus Christ himself has suffered the wrath of God in our place. Not for his own sins like the rich man, but for the sins of people like us who had a heart like the heart of the rich man. A heart that was lacking in love for God 
and lacking in love for our neighbors and that would stubbornly refuse to heed God's word and his warnings to repent. But in God's grace to us, he speaks to us now while there is still time and opportunity. And this is why we still go out with the gospel here in Richmond and even to the ends of the earth. David and Kara, this is why we go to places where nobody has heard of Jesus because some can't even be said, we can't even say about some, they have Moses and the prophets. There are people who don't have Moses and the prophets. As far as we know, there's no scripture in their language. No church. Maybe no believer in that area. And so we go to places where people will at least be able to say they have Moses and the prophets. They have the testimony of Jesus' resurrection. They have a believing church in their area. This is why we give. This is why we go. This is why we pray the way we do. And in his grace to us, Jesus speaks, the resurrected Christ, and says, you don't have to go to suffer the wrath of God. I've done that in your place. All you need to do is repent and believe me. Trust me. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, by God's grace, that has happened for me. I am in Christ. Then there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need not fear what has happened to the rich man. It will not happen to you because Christ has promised it will not happen to you. He paid. He paid for the sins that would, by right, send you there. You will never be in jeopardy of suffering the penalty that Jesus has taken for you. And if then you are concerned from that place of security with demonstrating more generosity, demonstrating a kinder heart, demonstrating more love for neighbor, the way that I'm praying through it and, and trying to see that happen in my life, if that is where your concern is, then how will that happen? Will it be the result of you piling guilt and shame upon yourself? Will we help others to make progress by piling guilt and shame on them? No, I'll leave you with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. The Apostle Paul was encouraging the Corinthian church to give in relief of those who were even more greatly impoverished than those in Macedonia. He, he spoke to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Friends, let us remember the example of Christ, who at great cost to himself, when we were helpless and needy and destitute in spiritual things, was generous toward us with his spiritual resources, with forgiveness, with eternal life, with grace. And out of gratitude to Him and out of love for Him, let us then turn and be generous toward others with our material resources. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us to, help us to do that. We pray <clears throat> that we would not turn a deaf ear to the warnings in Your Word. And that we would not then turn a deaf ear to others. Thank you for reminding us that those who close their ears to the cries of the poor will themselves call out and not be answered. And thank you also for the reminder that nothing, 
can rival your word in its power to bring about repentance and faith. Lord, help us to always have supreme confidence in your word so that we might faithfully offer it to those who have yet to believe in your son, Jesus, and so that we then might feast sumptuously on your word every day. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlin at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.